Summer has arrived, which means before we jet off for our well-earned holidays, thought must be given to the autumn and the season of party conferences. And while we're at it, let's reflect a little on the possibilities of a Labour government. Here to explain all is Tom Frakoviak, Managing Director of UK Public Affairs at, I want to say Cicero, but they're not anymore. They're H Advisors Cicero, but to me, they'll always be Cicero. Anyway, here's Tom. So, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank, thank you for coming on. I'm really delighted and thank you for making time for this because I appreciate you've got two young children, one very young child. So, so thank you for making time to do this. Thanks a lot, Tom. Great to be on. I was really keen to catch up with you because you've been 12 years at Cicero. You know a lot about politics and how it intersects with financial services. So there's some things I'm keen to talk to you about today. So, so we'll get into a bit of that. I mean, it would be remiss of us, and I, I, it's probably all been said already, but it would be remiss of us not to nod in passing to, to the political event of the weekend. And I saw, you know, so Boris resigning obviously was a bit of a thing, and then Nicola Sturgeon getting arrested. I thought it was very sweet that she got sent some flowers today. Um, I, think, I think everybody who gets arrested should be sent flowers. I think that should just be a thing now. But I'm kind of, I'm interested. Let's, let's just start there, because I guess, I'm, I'm curious now, because you understand political dynamics and, and like who knows where we'll be a year from now but but none of this looks good for the present government does it you know yeah. a divided parties parties tearing themselves apart parties sniping at each other don't do well in general elections and b the SNP tribulations probably play pretty well for Keir Starmer don't they yeah no thanks Tom. and look I, you know a lot about politics you've been involved in it closely for a number of years I know a number of people who listen to this podcast are as well but yes I think I think it's the distract, distracting factor for the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak with another sort of drama within the Conservative Party. Um, and it means he, you know, I think he is a Prime Minister who really wants to have a clear run at actually trying to manage the economy and run government. And every time he attempts to do that, he seems to get dragged back into, into this psychodrama. And I think the implications of it are is, Firstly, look, you're going, to, you're going to have three by-elections, probably somewhere around the 13th of July. Those are big headline media moments. I think Labour have a very good chance of taking Uxbridge and South Ryslip, which is Boris Johnson's constituency. That's obviously going to be embarrassing. And I just think also, you know, it means that those people on the backbenches of the Conservative Party who are unsettled have more influence in sort of derailing government policy, government legislation. And I think lastly, look, you, you know, we're all reading headlines this weekend around, you know, mortgages, interest rates, cost of living crisis. I think when people look at this, they, uh, to your point, they see a divided party, but they see a party that doesn't look serious or look like it's trying to help solve the issues that they face day to day. And I, I think you're right, that gives, you know, that would give Labour a lot of, of cautious optimism. And, uh, and I suppose two points on Labour. I just think it's really fascinating to think that in, you know, the Labour Party is where it is given the general election of 2019. You know, not many people within the Labour movement would have thought that they would be here. And I think you're right. You know, Labour have fallen back in Scotland. I think they have one seat out of 59 mm. Scottish seats presently. You know, I think what's happening with Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP, you know, if, if Labour get close to 20 seats in Scotland, that could make all the difference if the, the general election is tighter 
then the polling looks and that could be the thing that gets gets Labour over the line into a majority government next year. Yeah, having seen the wipeout in 2015, you know, it was hard to see a way back for Labour unless they could they could regain at least some ground in Scotland. And all of a sudden that now looks looks possible because there are a lot of marginals. Yeah. in Scotland and a lot that did go SNP's way not that long ago. I was afraid it's nearly 20 years since Labour won a general election. It's been a while, but it does look likely now. So I was talking to someone yesterday who was quite anxious about his lifetime allowance. So we got talking about Labour and Labour's position around all of this. And I guess there's, so there's, there's, there's two parts to this. One is how likely is it that we'll, we'll see the next Labour Party forming the next government? And we've just talked a bit about that. And I, you know, there's a lot of water to flow under the bridge yet. And can they get a majority? And will they have to go into coalition? Will we see Rishi Sunak pull it back? You know, there's a lot of unknowns in all of that. But then secondly, there is that question, well, if they do get to form the next government, either as a majority party or in coalition with others, you know, what are we going to see happen? And we haven't heard a lot from Labour about what their financial services priorities might be. And we'll perhaps talk a bit about Rachel Reeves and the whole kind of in pension fund investment stuff. But I, I'm really interested to hear from you. You know, what's, what's your sense of where the Labour Party is at and what we might hear from them if they do get to form the next government? Yeah, I think I think the Labour Party is cautiously optimistic. They've had very good by-election wins. They've had solid uh, local election results recently. Mm. You know, they are having unprecedented engagement with business, as you'd well know, Tom. So I think they, you know, they are feeling cautiously optimistic. I think, you know, they are nervous that some of the polling is is almost, you know, too far out there. Some of the polling that has Labour leading by, you know, 20 points creates expectations and, you know, puts pressure on, on Labour. I would say, I think there is, you know, one area maybe Labour, you know, need to do more is, you know, on, on economic competence and on leadership you know, Labour do lead the Conservative Party. And those are two usually key indicators about who's going to win the general election. But on leadership, I would say Keir Starmer, from some of the polling I've recently seen, is not that far ahead of Rishi Sunak. I think Rishi Sunak's competency levels has been have been increasing over the months. And I think there's more to do, Labour, there to project Keir Starmer out into the world and further across the country as kind of the next Prime Minister of the UK. But I totally agree with you, Tom, where you started this. There are a lot of unknowns, but I think if the economy doesn't change, if some of the kind of really quite dire news that we're seeing, particularly that hitting you know, consumers and how homeowners, I think that doesn't really matter, you know, the politics of Westminster, who's leading the opposition. I just think after 14 years, I just think the Conservatives will really struggle to win a majority in that in that regard. So, OK, well, we'll come back to that in a moment. Before we get there, we've got mm. probably at least another year, maybe 16 months, maybe 18 months tops of the current government to run. So what can we expect to see them do with the time that they've got left. You know, we've heard about the Edinburgh reforms. I'm interested in the tension between, apparent tension between the Treasury and the FCA and Andrew Griffith's sort of briefing about the consumer duty. Because nominally, they've still got a pretty hefty majority. Yeah, I think the majority is somewhere around 55. We've had the Edinburgh reforms. A lot of those are being enacted through the Financial Services and Markets Bill, 
which is concluding its parliamentary stages. Currently um, at report stage in the House of Lords, I think, as we speak. Exactly, Tom, yeah. Uh, So that will be concluded fairly shortly. That introduces a whole swathe of new financial services legislation that's pertinent to domestically. Essentially, it's bringing on shore lots of EU legislation and then reviewing it and making it fit for purpose for the UK. And, you know, and that's everything from looking at, you know, the ring fence between banks, uh, retail disclosures, there's consumer credit, short selling regulation, you know, VAT on funds, you know, consolidation in the pensions market, you know, we've seen the government's green finance strategy. So there is lots and lots of financial services, policy, government is reviewing or the regulators are reviewing and all of that needs to work through and will continue all the way through into the general election and beyond you know that i think just there's lots and lots of work as a lot of your listeners will will understand because they're dealing with it on a day-to-day basis and i think you know your point around the tension i think this kind of goes into the heart of kind of where we are in the post Brexit financial services landscape. I think that what you're talking about, which we see with Andrew Griffith and maybe the Treasury and the regulators, is this, on one hand, wanting high regulatory standards, uh, which has always been a benchmark of the UK financial services system and the reason why lots of people operate here, but also this desire that we need international competitiveness in this global race with other jurisdictions always putting pressure on London and, and the UK. And I think, you know, so the city minister's detractors would say stuff that he's mentioned on the consumer duty where he's questioned implementation or the need for the for the regulator to go as far. You know, his detractors would say, you know, that's unhelpful. This, you know, it's being implemented this summer. Board signed it off, you know, last Christmas. And he doesn't really have the influence within government to be sort of, you know, bringing these ar- arguments to public. But his supporters would say, actually, you know, we need to have a much more visible public debate around, you know, high standards and high regulatory standards versus competitiveness. And that needs to be, you know, that needs to be weighed up. And, you know, as you'll know, Tom, the Financial Services and Markets Bill introduces a secondary objective to both the FCA Mm. and the PRA to facilitate international competitiveness. And I think it's both in the medium and the long term. So, and that created quite a lot of tension as the bill was going through Parliament between the government, Treasury and the regulators. And that debate has now broken out into that sort of comments from the city minister. But I think it's a debate that we will continue to see and will and will run and run. Yeah, and he's not, he's certainly not the most senior minister in the Treasury, but Andrew Griffith. I mean, he puts himself about quite a bit, doesn't he? He's he's been he's been pretty busy. It strikes me with various speeches and bits of activity. And I've not I've not met him, but he seems yeah. he's a man in a hurry. It feels like. Yeah, I agree. I think you know, and it's commendable. I think he you know he is out there doing roundtables, meetings. He's you know he's not afraid to say what was on his mind. He does consult widely across the industry. So I don't think the industry feels it has an issue accessing the city minister. I think sometimes the the industry 
fails to or doesn't quite understand who Andrew Griffith is, is speaking on behalf? Is he is he floating ideas, this sort of debate around, you know, this competitiveness and high regulatory standards? Is that is that his is that something that's kind of personally or is he front running something for the Treasury? And I think probably the industry is the view that that's more of a of a sort of personal remarks that he's making. And I, I think on the on the other side, you know, Jonathan Reynolds, who's on the, the the business minister on the Labour side, I think the two of them definitely get the kind of the plaudits and the badges for for the most amount of engagement across oh, um, across yeah. business, yeah. yeah, and financial services. Both of them, they don't they don't shy away. No, and I know I know Rachel Reeves has been out meeting industry, doing her bit as well, and she was over in New York recently where she gave a speech where she talked about pension schemes beyond a knee jerk response to the to the budget when they talked about the lifetime allowance. Yeah. I still I still don't hear anything from Labour, and maybe it's just not a priority for them at the moment. I don't hear them talking much about the sort of bread and butter retail financial services stuff that perhaps we and our clients and our listeners and, and the financial services industry spend our day dealing with. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I think it's telling the, sort of the, the national policy process for Labour, which is the start of their kind of big manifesto process that goes on into next year. I think it was really telling that there, I think there was a leak maybe on Labour list of some yep. of the policies. Yep. And I thought it was really telling that actually there's really very, very little on financial services and very, very little on pensions in there. I think the priority for Labour is obviously the five missions, particularly in relation to financial services, is around this G7, you know, to be the fastest growing country in the G7 and spreading jobs and and productivity across the UK. And so the, the Labour's kind of view of that has been very much you know, wanting to demonstrate fiscal responsibility, which you saw Rachel Rees rowing back from the Green Prosperity Yeah, the 28 funding. billion, that was yeah. really interesting when they resolved yeah. from that. Yeah. yeah, and then inward investment, you know, I think they, Labour have very much been taking the argument around the Inflation Reduction Act in America and that the need that the UK needs something to at least hold sway against what American and Europeans respond. So I think that's very much sort of the big picture of where their financial services sort of messaging fits at the moment. If you look a bit underneath that, you'll see that actually in many regards, Labour's position is very similar to the government in terms of, you know, the progress of the financial service and markets bill and the Edinburgh reforms and some of the reforms we're seeing around solvency too. Labour pretty much agree with the government in the margins, there's differences. And I think, you know, what you'll probably see is that as Labour get into government, build experience in financial services, if they do indeed form the next government, then you'll kind of see more evolution in their financial services policy. But, you know, Labour, you know, are focusing on green taxonomy. They've been critical of the government for not moving faster on that in the financial services markets bill. They're very much focused on those consumer protection angle with buy now, pay later around the potential harm of crypto to retail investors. Uh, very much about protecting access to cash. So kind of, you know, Tom, again, you've followed this for a long time. That's kind of the areas that you would see Labour sort of focusing on. And then, yeah, your point about lifetime allowances, I think lifetime allowances rolls into, I would say, a group of kind of tax measures or reviews. And I think you could add probably non-DOM status into that. I think you could, re- you could probably add private equity and carried interests. 
I think you could add the fact that Labour will look at the government's lifting of the bonus cap on bankers. Mm. I think you can, you know, the narrative around private school exemptions. And all of that is political positioning to say the Tory government is therefore a selected few and is not on the side of ordinary voters. So, yes, if people who have li- concerns about lifetime, you know, going over their lifetime allowance, that might well be a legitimate concern to have if there is a Labour government um, uh, next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a pretty, pretty solid political calculation that A, it plays well to the, to the mass of voters and B, you know, if they get to actually enact, enact some of these changes, you know, Taxing the capital of the wealthy is, you know, you can you're going to have to listen hard for the for the strains of the tiny violins playing across the population in response to that kind of those kind of interventions. So there's that one area that does interest me is this kind of sense of political consensus. of everywhere I turn, even even the Tony Blair Institute, which put out a really interesting paper on this, you know, it's all about how do we get pension funds to invest in economic growth. And there was Rachel yeah. Reeves talking about fifty billion pounds DC pot of money to stimulate economic growth in the UK. We've heard the same from the present government. There was Tony Blair talking about it. So whether it's a pooled fund within the existing ecosystem or as Tony Blair's Institute paper was suggesting more of a, look, we just need to move rapidly to fewer, bigger pension schemes. You know, that's that's the end game. We just need to get there as quickly as possible. And we've heard kind of moves in that direction from the government around value for money and that kind of stuff. So, so that feels like a you know the Overton window that's where it's at you know that's that's the game in town and there was just final interesting point on this I saw the PLSA who had their conference last week the PLSA whose job it is to speak up for the pensions industry put out a paper basically saying look there's there's lots of good stuff that we could do before we have to start consolidating pension schemes and I read that and thought well it's all it's, it's almost like you're just basically arguing for you know jobs for the boys here uh, but maybe I'm being a bit har- harsh on them. But um, interesting you take on all of that. Yeah, I think, you know, sort of in addition to the, you know, the solvency two reforms that we're seeing coming out of the number of reforms, both parties, whoever forms the next government, is constrained by the tight fiscal headroom. And I think they look, don't they? I think lots of policymakers have always looked enviously on, you know, Australia and superannuation and the Canada, Canadian, yeah. yeah, and Canada and, you know, the big pension funds. You know, you walk around half of London and, you know, some Canadian pension fund owns the buildings that you, you look up at. And uh, so, you know, for me, my personal take on it is, I wouldn't say, you know, I think it's there's a lot of optimism that pension funds can suddenly be this magical solution. And I think, yes, I think there, there is a answer there somewhere. But I think, you know, you need to understand what a pension is for. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people in the city, quite rightly, so the pushback on a lot of these ideas is, you know, with we have a respond- fiduciary duty responsibility to our members. And you'll actually find a lot of unions on, on the, you know, the left of Labour politics that would actually agree with that view that actually their members' benefits is actually very important. So for me, I think what is missing in this debate is we're suddenly looking at consolidation or we're looking at sort of comply and explain regimes for DC investment in sort of these ideas around future growth funds. 
without you know having a full debate really about what is the what is the point of a pension you know where do members sit within that and also just wider things around you know are we even just saving enough for our retirement so it feels to me that it's just one that politicians need to be slightly cautious about be careful what you wish for because by trying to solve one problem about maybe a lack of inward investment into the UK you maybe underline another problem about you know saving rates and what members getting in retirement and also, how how do you actually unlock this? How does it? What does it look like? Yeah, and to be fair to the PLSA, their paper was really saying, look, there are things that we can do before we start worrying about trying to merge pension schemes. So there was some some good content in there. Look, I want to move on to party conferences because the, all of a sudden we're not too far away from party conference season. But before we do, just one one quick question, yeah. straw poll of one. Uh, since you're the only person I'm talking to right now, are pension dashboards ever actually going to happen, Tom? <laughs> Um, I th- I think yes. I think they they continue to be watered down, don't they? <laughs> What's the new is the new deadline? Twenty twenty six. Twenty twenty six. I mean, now, and you yeah. know as well as I do, politically, that's just like you know that's that's equivalent of never, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly, so is yeah. it going to happen? I think it will happen, but I think it will not be what was envisioned. And will there be the interest by the time it's actually delivered? Fair enough. Thank you for that. Straight answer. So party conferences. So I was struck by uh, my friend Nathan Long, who was at the Labour Party conference last year. I've been to a few over the years, but I wasn't at any conferences last year. And he came back from the Labour Party conference saying there was a real buzz around the place, real sense of this is a party that actually believes it's going to form the next government now. And, you know, that probably will be the case again this autumn as they go into their party conference, whereas perhaps the Conservative Party conference will be less sort of gung-ho and less positive, though I'm sure they'll make a good fist of it. Look, is there any point these days in going to party conferences? Do policies get made there? What is the point of them, Tom? Because you've been to a few, haven't you? Yeah, Yeah, I think I've been to maybe it must be over, I don't know, 40 party conferences for my sins. So look, you know, party conferences have changed a lot over the years that I've been attending. You know, they used to be very much focused on members in the party itself and kind of training and voting on policy measures. You know, now actually a lot of the focus is on actually fundraising for the party, trying to sort of present that message to the outside world, be it the business community, the FS community, I don't know, the charitable sector around how the party's doing, where its policies are going. So, you know, it it has evolved. And I think party conferences are important because... For me, it allows me to see, you know, you're seeing what the the leadership, how they want to present their message and where they think that the party, their party is heading. But actually, what's more important, you can actually identify where the gap is between the leadership and actually the rest of the party and even even the MPs in that party, you know, through the host of the fringe events that you go to, through other speeches, through kind of late nights, um, in you know at dinners or in bars you know people do speak at party conference so it's just a it's just a really interesting place to take a sense check of you know how unified a party is and actually does a leadership have a support for what they want to implement other reasons party conferences are I find them valuable you know you you see who the rising stars are within the party what ideas what policy ideas they're pushing maybe which what factions in the party are kind of, you know, are doing well and, and, and what their policy platforms are. 
And also, actually, you know, to your colleague's point about the Labour conference last year, you get to sort of sit around and see what the sort of business community, financial service community, the outside world thinks of of that party by just like the sheer attendance, the number of exhibition stands, mm. the seniority of people who um, are t- attending from business. You know, and last year in Liverpool, you know, it was a very senior business audience very senior audience from across the UK economy, lots of lots of people there, lots of exhibits, lots of fringe events. So I think the Labour Party, you know, felt very positive about that, that their their message is getting through and um and they're actually got some traction across the economy. And look, for a political anorak like myself and somebody who's worked in the works in the industry, I mean conferences are great for gossip and intrigue. And you know, even if a party is doing brilliantly in the polls there's always a faction of the party or a group of the party who are jealous about other sides of the of the party and and if you're if you're lucky enough and in the right place at the right time uh, you usually get to hear about it yeah there's usually someone will disgrace themselves or say (laughs) i'll do something stupid as well isn't there which is usually quite fun but those those fringe events you referenced good conversations take place in some of those events and I've found over the years it's a great opportunity to actually engage one-to-one with parliamentarians and they don't all turn up. A fair number of them do and they come out and they talk to, to, to industry and they talk to people and you can have sensible conversations with them. So I think, I mean, I, I've also found over the years it's good, good just, just for networking and, and, and for that yeah. for that as well. And also if, you're, if it's the party of government, there is a debate within the party government which is happening outside of the sort of Whitehall framework. And therefore, actually, that conversation can be a lot more sort of open and and actually get to sort of hear some of the sort of real challenges that maybe a government is facing about what they what they want to do and what they can actually do within the sort of parameters of working uh, in government. Yeah, indeed. So so you will be there again this year? I will be there again this year as well. Yes, I'm I'm I Bournemouth. Manchester, Liverpool, big fans of all of those places. And I'm a big fan of party conference. I really enjoy it. And also, uh, Tom, as you say, just actually catching up with colleagues and uh, people in the industry like yourself is always a, it's always a good, good thing to do at conference as well. Good stuff. Well, I inadvertently managed to book a holiday while the Labour Party conference is on this year. So I'm now committed to be out of the country for that one. But I will certainly cover off at least one or two others. So there we are. Good stuff. Tom, really good to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time today. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.